0: Eliza, where the devil are my slippers? <laughs>
1: <laughs> my Fair Lady, performed with all octopic cast. Done. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpsons fans brought to you by ThatShelf.com. Each week, we talk about a movie parodied on The Simpsons. Maybe it was The Simpsons that introduced us to the film, or maybe when we finally saw it, we realized hey, that's where that Simpson joke comes from. Regardless, each week we pick one at least one of us hasn't seen, or hasn't seen in a while, watch it, and come together to discuss. I'm your host, Adam Scholes, and joining me as always is the Colonel Hugh Pickering to my professor, Henry Higgins, my co-host, Nate Storing. How are you doing today, buddy?
2: I'm doing great today, because uh, we have a very special guest with us today as well. You may know him from his writing and producing work on The Simpsons, as well as for F is for Family, and of course, actually one of my childhood favorites, Ah, Real Monsters, It's Mike Price. So welcome, Mike. Good to have you
0: here. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me on.
1: Before we dig into everything else, like, Michael, you know, we found out through the grapevine that you're a little bit of a theater nerd, theater buff. And you obviously wrote or are the credited writer of this episode, My Fair Laddie, that we're going to be talking about today. So can you just talk through a little bit about your history, you know, how you got into theater, your love of theater, and then how you sort of found yourself working for The Simpsons?
0: Sure. Well, I mean, I did not grow up in like what I would call a theatrical household. Uh, You know, like some people say, oh, my mom was a drama teacher. My dad was a my dad worked in a construction company, like servicing heavy paving equipment in New Jersey. (laughs) And my mom was a mom. You know, back in those days, moms didn't work that much. But I just loved first movies and TV comedy specifically. And then, you know, we always had, like, cast albums. Like, everyone had Mm -hmm. cast albums in those days. So I remember we had the cast album for the movie of My Fair Lady, among others. So I remember hearing uh, that first. Like, I remember hearing The Rain in Spain Falls Mainly on the Plain. Like, that was a big hit. (laughs) That was a big hit song back in those days. But anyway, and then uh, my town did a wonderful thing, which was when I was in 8th or ninth grade. They started having a summer musical that the kids who were like it was something to do during the summer. So right. um, I was already like bitten a little bit by the acting bug, like being in school plays and stuff. But I got to, finally got to be in musicals. So the first one we did was Bye Bye Birdie, and then we did Oliver, The Music Man. You know all the all the standards. You yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a really terrible one called Plain and Fancy, which is about the Pennsylvania. Amish people, Oh, it's, okay. it's really bad. It's really, really bad. I don't know why we did it. Anyway, uh, I could do an hour on that alone. Yeah,
1: the, the other ones are classics that I've heard yeah. of. I, plain and Fancy is, uh, didn't make it north of the border, I don't think. It, yeah. No,
0: it, it didn't deserve anything. It's really bad. Anyway, uh, but it was fun, and I got into theater. Then I started doing, like, community theater. I did a bunch of shows there, and I went on to college in New Jersey, as a theater major, did a few shows there, and then I started being able to go to see shows. Again, my family was not really into going to New York City, even though we we lived like an hour outside of New York. But in those days, like early '70s times, like New York was really—if you watch those movies from then, like
2: yeah. Serpico
0: or The Taking of Pelham One, Two, Three, you know, it was French Connection. It was like a scary place, you know. And my my dad only wanted to go to go to Mets games, which meant like he sort of skirted around the city, like he didn't go to the scenes. Anyway, but I loved it. My older brother went to see the theater a lot. He'd come back with like playbills from like Greece and The Wiz and uh, all these great shows. So anyway, I just totally loved it. I became specifically a big fan of Stephen Sondheim. So I went to see everything I could of his. And long story short, you know, after being a theater major in college and then also in graduate school, I studied theater directing. I didn't know what to do with that. Like there's no way to make that into a job. you know. <laughs> so I moved back to New York area and I got involved doing like performing and writing improv and sketch comedy. Really inspired by watching like Monty Python and Saturday Night Live and Toronto's own SCTV. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, and that sort of led to me performing and, and moving to Los Angeles, you know, with hopes of trying to perform or write comedy. And, you know, after a bunch of years of struggle, I started to get work. And then after being in a bunch of shows that came and went, you know, the first show I was ever on uh, as a primetime sitcom was a show called Homeboys in Outer Space. That was on the UPN network,
3: 1996.
0: Homeboys in outer space. Brothers. Everyone go to your Google right now, look it up, and you'll see it's listed on every list of like 10 worst shows of all time. <laughs> <laughs> but, but. but. This is what I tell people is that it was really fun. It was a great job. I was so happy to have a job. It was a goofy show. And I met some amazing people, including and especially Al Jean and Mike Reese, who were uh, consulting producers on that show. We got to know each other. They hired me later for the show they created the next year. That was called Teen Angel. Oh. And then we also worked on some other things off and on. And long story short, come around um, fall or so, if 2001 I was working on a show in Chicago of all places that was struggling in the ratings and it was about to be canceled and like what am I going to do I got a young kid at home I had a three-year-old son and I got a call from Al Jean and he's like hey Mike how are you I'm like I'm good how are you Al and he's like well you know uh, we're getting ready to start another season at the Simpsons and you know someone just left and we may have a job opening at the Simpsons if you're available and I was like I think I'm going to be available. Uh, I said the show I'm on, the show I'm on, is in danger of being canceled soon. He goes, well, if it does, if you're available, let me know. So then I started kind of actively praying every night, please put the show out of its misery, uh, and it did. It was canceled like literally like a week later. I called Al up, and he's like, yeah. So then I started working at The Simpsons right after that, like in December of 2001, and I've been so happy to be there ever since.
1: So you basically had the dream career that like Nate and I both wanted
0: as teenagers, like working yeah. working
1: in theater and then getting to work for The Simpsons. Like I, that literally was the dream. Like I, I
0: wow, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've been extremely fortunate, and uh, it's an incredible show. I mean, I I knew of course I knew all about The Simpsons. Uh, it was season thirteen was on television when I joined it, and we started writing season fourteen. And within like a week of being there, they were like, hey, go over to the recording studio. Why? Mick Jagger's here, recording his part <laughs> you know, for that uh, summer camp show. Yeah. I was like, holy, oh my God, this is amazing, you know? Uh, so it's been just an incredible ride, and I'm still there, and and very happily, uh, nicely let me go away every once in a while to work on other things, like my work on the Netflix show with Bill Barr, Effers for Family, but then I, they always, I was always able to come back, so... Um, we're still going strong. We just got picked up for two more seasons, uh, 35 and 36. That we're writing 35 right now. I'm very excited about it. And it's great. I couldn't be more fortunate or more grateful to still be part of this amazing show. That's amazing. That's amazing.
1: It's Yeah, it's such a funny thing that the show is as old as I am. Right. <laughs> um, and so <laughs> it's one of those things that, like, I don't know what I will do when it, no longer exist it's funny as long as i've been around this other thing has been around and so when it will no longer be around like i have an existential crisis so i had one when phantom was closing and i don't like i don't know if i will survive the existential crisis of if the simpsons ever ends but well uh,
0: the one thing i can say and i'm not speaking any kind of like insider knowledge or anything it's just my guess being that the simpsons is now owned by the walt disney company Uh, that Walt Disney Company doesn't let things go. No, no, that's true. So I think that The Simpsons, as long as it's still in the Disney universe, whatever, I mean, I think, I I can't even tell you, but I think, like, Mickey Mouse is still around 100 years later, you know, so I think that there'll still be, there'll be some kind of Simpsons somewhere, uh, you know, (laughs) if if Disney has anything to say about
1: it. And maybe Nate and I will also last forever as well. That's true, Um, that's true. Well, t- to that point, speaking of The Simpsons, today we are talking about the 1964 musical film My Fair Lady, which you might remember from such Simpson episodes as Season three's Bart's Friend Falls in Love, Season 5's The Last Temptation of Homer, Season 13's The Sweetest Apu, Season 14's The Great Louse Detective, and, the focus of today, Season 17's My Fair Laddie. So, Mike, when we approached you to come on the podcast, you suggested that we, you know, check out My Fair Laddie. Um, and then you suggested we check out the companion piece, My Fair Lady. Uh, what what is it about this movie? Why why? It's weird. Why I it... didn't
0: I didn't even know that there was such a thing called My Fair Lady until I wrote that yeah. episode. Yeah, and how it how was convenient, really right? Really weird.
1: Yeah. No, but what is it about the what is it about this film that you felt uh, was worth uh, us ta- taking a look at it?
0: Um, well, you know, the story is a classic story. I mean, it was originally a play by George Bernard Shaw, which was adapted to the Broadway stage by Learner and Lowe, and then the movie. And so, I mean, it came about, I didn't decide, like, I should do a parody of uh, My Fair Lady. It came about from us needing to come up with stories and, and look for something to do, you know. So I always loved Groundskeeper Willie as a character. I thought he was an amazing character. He's one of my favorite characters, and Dan Castellaneta, who voices him, as well as Homer and, you know, Cresty and all the other characters, is so great. And I was like, oh, it'd be really fun to do something with Groundskeeper Willie. And as I thought about it, oh, what if something happened with him and Lisa took pity on him and Lisa decided like she's going to help him out. And then as my mind sort of stood around, oh, it could be like my fair lady and she's Henry Higgins and he's Eliza Doolittle. And then it all just kind of made sense. So um, it's a little bit different now. But what we would do back in those days, we'd have one day a year where the whole staff would get together and it would be around December And it's time to listen to new stories for the next upcoming season. So it was my chance to go on. And what you would do is that you would essentially pitch the entire story to the entire staff, including Matt Groening, including Jim Brooks, Al Jean, everyone. And you kind of put on a little bit of a performance of like pitching it out. And here's what it is and come up with some jokes. And so I pitched this story. And the one thing that made me realize that I was doing pretty well in the pitch was when I got to the first song that's in the episode is our version of "Wouldn't It Be Loverly," you know. where are doing those things like just to have a place to live and a wonderful house and everything.
1: Warm face, warm hands, warm feet. oh, wouldn't it be lovely?
0: And so I remember pitching it. I'm saying like, so then they ask Willie, "What would you like?" And he goes, "All I want is a room somewhere." And they go, "And what else?" He goes. That's it. (laughs) So so, when I pitched that in the room, like everybody laughed and then you're like, okay, I I think I got a good shot with this. And then I went through the other things and I mean, the, the comedy premise of it was that Willie's life is so small that anything is good. So then that led to him seeing like I could instead of I could have danced all night I could just be indoors all night and things like that you know <laughs> right, so, right. it made sense they said, okay go with it and then I wrote the episode and I got to write most of the parody lyrics it got rewritten quite a bit with everybody in the whole staff as, as things go but um yeah they went with it so it's a classic story and there's a cliche they go oh it writes itself you know which it didn't really do that but like the 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 parameters of the my fair lady story did kind of work out because Mm -hmm. like bart and lisa make this bet i could pass off willie as a gentleman instead of the embassy ball It was the the, uh, science fair and then it is a success and then the conundrum now is like now what you know with eliza doolittle that's what happens with her like We'll get into the movie in a minute, but uh, Rex Harrison is such an a-hole in that movie. Anyway, he's such a jerk. Anyway, but at least it was a little more um, nice. But she hadn't thought either about what does Willie do now, and then we landed this whole thing where he gets a job as a maitre d at a restaurant. And, and, of course, The Simpsons being The Simpsons, we can't leave the episode with Willie still being a sophisticated gentleman working at a restaurant. So we had to find a way to get him to go back to good old Willie, which... Crusty provided that by coming in and insulting, <laughs> insulting Willie and giving him a hard time.
1: Well, let's actually take a listen to that first number that you made a reference to here. Here's from the original cast record. No, I'm just kidding. Here's uh, Willie with uh, "Wouldn't it be adequate?"
3: Don't you ever hope for anything better?
1: Something better for Willie? All I want is a place somewhere. That's it.
0: Maybe you could aim a little higher.
3: Well, let's see. Oh, to have me shock rebuilt, gets my
1: rotten teeth all drilled. Something on underneath me kilts, oh, wouldn't it be adequate?
3: Matching shoes for both me feet, dining on untainted meat. A toilet, what still has its heat? Oh, wouldn't it be adequate? Adequate. Adequate.
1: Wouldn't it be adequate? I will say that the, re-watching this, the false start of that's it. Like I actually had I me like, loud. yeah, I yeah. laughed out loud. Like a full <laughs> guttural, <laughs> uh, it's a, it's a very solid joke. So mm-hmm. uh, well, well done. And I'm glad that it made it through from pitch to air. Cause I imagine that's not always the case. No,
0: it's not. I mean, I'd say maybe like five, eight percent of the stuff you originally pitch make it all the way through. That's pretty good. So yeah, cause it, we all, we rewrite everything all the time. So yeah, well, so that was very gratifying.
2: So one thing I, I really I noticed and I really loved from this musical number was just all of the sort of choreography that's going on in it where you have, you know, like he has the pets on his feet at one point right. and he's, you know, like all of that. Was that so was that actually like in the script or was that more sort of the animator's uh, riffing on the script or how, how did that come together?
0: It tends to be a little bit of both. We'll write some of that stuff in the script, but then our director, who's Bob Anderson, did a fantastic job in this episode. They'll add a lot of it too, you know, so... Um, <laughs> I can't remember going back that many years, like, which exactly, which stuff was which. But they, yeah, we have a pretty good working relationship with them. A lot of it comes from the script first, but then they end up coming up with great stuff. Yeah, it was really fun.
1: Well, one of the things I wanted to ask, with the focus of this season of our show being all about the musical parodies on The Simpsons, I wanted to sort of talk to you a little bit about what the process of doing a musical parody is like, because... The musical parodies on The Simpsons—they're not like Weird Al parodies in that you just take like the music of the show and then just change all the lyrics and call Mm -hmm. it a day. There's always a sound alike to a song from the show, so it has to be close enough to the audience knows what it is, yeah, to be recognizable, but different enough to legally not, you know, have (laughs) any slaps on the wrist. But the, the thing that you know Nate and I keep remarking upon is that a they're always like outstanding. Like the the songs are always so good. In some cases, we've been arguing they're better than, or better and more memorable than the originals. So, what is that process like? Are you are you? I'm assuming that that's mostly Alf Clausen who's doing the the musical part. But are you working closely with him, or you just sort of you write the lyrics to the the original, and then he finds a way to change it? Or or like, what? Talk us through what that process looks like.
0: Yeah, that's a thing where with this particular episode and i had another one that we did like the very next season because that one was well done and i was like let's do another one that turned out to be called yokel chords which is the sound of music uh starring lisa and uh, cletus's kids anyway um that was a similar thing where like we would then write the songs to the original okay you know and then alf would do come in and do his arrangement of it and yeah he's alf was really really good at Doing that, You know, and it started with the first one I remember seeing was the Mary Poppins one where they took all the socks for Mary Poppins. Yeah. it was just enough of a thing. I think over the years, it's even gotten harder. Like you have to even make it a little more indistinguishable from the real. I think some of it comes down to how much it would cost to license the original right. or even if the people who own the original would let us do it. You know, sometimes that comes into play. So that's stuff that I wasn't quite aware of then, or I'm not one of the main producers of the show still, but I don't know how that works. But I know that we're doing one coming up, an episode that's coming up very soon, where we did take a song, it was from a somewhat more obscure Broadway show of Ragtime. Okay, yeah, yeah. And uh, there's a song in there about Henry Ford, that's all about how Henry Ford revolutionized the assembly line and everything. And so um, it's a big song that they took, and Mr. Burns sings it about... About using hiring non-union workers and to replace the <laughs> union course. workers, yeah. But like um, that was one where I, I'm pretty—I know for sure, like they paid to license the right. actual song itself. Mm. So that when you see that, that'll be on like later on this year. You'll see they just took the song and did it. Right. Um, but with this one, because of Learner and Low and whatever, I, I think they decided well, we'll just do like the Sherry Bobbins version of it. <laughs> but Alf would do all those, yeah. Yeah. And then I would, I would, he would, he would show them to me, and I would say, "This is great," you know, whatever. And And then I got to go to the actual scoring session like in the big giant soundstage at Fox where in those days we had like a very large orchestra and then I got to sit there and just watch him conduct this orchestra, do these songs. Yeah, so I finally felt like I'm finally, oh, I'm finally kind of on Broadway. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Right. Totally. And the cast are such great singers too, right? And not only are they great singers, they're great singers in their Simpsons characters which Mm -hmm. should not necessarily have great voices and yet they, like it's, it's astounding that they're doing, like, so many layers. This episode especially, like, Dan's singing voice has always been impressive, but the fact that he can make groundskeeper Willie sound so good is yeah. really, really impressive.
0: Yeah, they're all incredible. They're all just amazing talent, and I still can't get over the fact that, like, you go in and you record them, and, like, here's this guy, and he's, he goes switches from Homer to Krusty to Willie to Barney to Quimby, whatever. He's, and they're all, they're all amazing. Yeah, so that's, it's so much fun.
2: So one question I have as well about this, we've been kind of like looking back at the way that musicals have evolved on The Simpsons as well. And it's like early days, there's actually some like really early musical numbers, but the rules have changed over time, right? And I feel like probably the monorail episodes, maybe the first one where people actually break out into song <laughs> and it's sort of like part of the reality of the show and works like a musical where it moves the plot forward and all of that. And so I'm wondering now, is it just sort of like it's a given that like musical numbers could just happen on The Simpsons? Or are there still sort of rules about, you know, like when it works, when it doesn't in the way that you're thinking about it?
0: Yeah, I think it it probably depends on the individual episode situation. But I think, yeah, like uh, since this one is aired, there's been a few other like direct sort of like we're doing this show now right. like there's a great one that's based on evita yeah called the president war pearls that dana gould wrote that's great are there other ones where uh, we did like an original musical that was aired uh two or so years ago it was sort of taking the idea of high school musical and, and like there's a show on disney i think where they get people back together who had been in high school yeah yeah, yeah. To redo it. it was called star of the backstage that was the name of this episode but that was a great one the writer of that episode elizabeth averick had been a writer on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, where they had like mm-hmm. yeah. amazing musical numbers oh, in really every cool. episode. So she got to write all those with Jack Dolgen's, and like really decided we're going to make like real original musical. So I think it all depends. But like this one, like with Mr. Burns, I just told you about. Like it just comes out of nowhere in the middle of a regular scene, and Mr. Burns <laughs> just decides to start singing a, 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 a number, or kind of like See My Vest, another yeah. one. You know, so it's like yeah, I think it's okay now. The, the reality of the show is elastic enough that you know we decide to break out into a musical number and that's fine.
1: Yeah, like it's one of those funny things that I think a lot of audiences struggle with. Musicals in general and musical movies especially and it's it's something we've been discussing over the course of this series but yeah, for some reason with animation, it's like yeah, it's totally fine if they just break up. It's like nobody questions it. It's totally normal. And I love—I mean, the see my vest thing is set, like my favorite thing after that is when Bart is like na 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 na, na. like he's he, like so clearly, Burns was actually doing a musical number that Bart and Lisa witnessed, and Bart was right, totally yeah. into it. And it's like and yeah, you yeah. just you buy it, and it's great, and it's yeah.
0: great. But it's, and none of it is real. It's just. Yeah. cartoons, you no, know, exactly. so, yeah.
2: yeah. It's always it's actually weirder now to go back to the early seasons when that kind of stuff doesn't happen. Right. And it right. feels more like just a sitcom, basically. That feels somehow more surreal or more like oh yeah, the show used to be like that. It used to be yeah. very straightforward in terms of the way
0: I, it works. just in general, but you're just saying too, like it, it always baffles me when I see people get upset, like, why are these people suddenly singing? You know, it's not real. But like None of it is real, you know. <laughs> so like, it would be one thing if it was like a documentary and like a musical number <laughs> broke out in the middle of it, but that could happen still because like a flash mob or something. Yeah. But like, none of it is real. It's all an artificial construct. Yeah. No. So. I for sure. For sure.
1: Well, so I mean, because the musical has cropped up so much in The Simpsons, Nate and I really were curious. Like, is that a big common thread amongst the writers? Is, is there a lot of musical theater history within the writers' room, or is it just theater history? Because, or like, what? How does? How did that? even happened yeah
0: think? I would say but the knowledge I have of the folks on staff there's not a whole a lot of theater people there like oh, interesting. I'm probably one of the only people that have ever really done theater per se we used to have a guy who was a playwright who did some plays but a lot of people like going to the theater right. you know Alice particularly Al Jean particularly is always whenever he's in New York he's always saying "Oh, I went to see this or that show Mike Reese is the same way there's probably more uh, mathematicians and electrical engineers <laughs> on the staff it's than wild. theater nerds, you know, or, or lawyers. Or half these guys were like went to Harvard to become doctors or lawyers or yeah. whatever, and decided I'd much rather write jokes. Uh, so sometimes I used to say like I'm the only theater person on there, but it's close to it. It's close to it. I mean, people appreciate it, but a lot of people don't. And Elizabeth, who who has since gone on to uh, work on some other great stuff. Elizabeth, I think, is actually working on the show, High School Musical, the musical, the series, or something right now. So yeah, we talk about stuff where i say, I went to see this, this or that show, but people would be like, eh, you know. So <laughs> uh, so it's often like, there's like little sprinkled in jokes throughout that are referencing either Sondheim or Broadway. There was one that, like around a similar season to this where, I forget why, uh, it might've been the episode about like Bart and Milhouse getting involved in like this Boy Scout troop or something. And somewhere it turned into them started singing The Farmer and the Cowman Should Be Friends from Oklahoma. I can't remember exactly what... I'm just literally, like, it's crawling into the back of my mind now, but I remember pitching that. Like, and suddenly Barton Millhouse was singing The Farmer and the Cowman Should Be Friends. That's funny. Uh, so it's that kind of thing. Like, I-, I have a pretty deep well of knowledge of bizarre musical things. Or There's one where Flanders um, started singing... The Code of Many Colors song From Joseph the colors yeah, from colors. right? And then he's like Flowering his plants And he went through All the, all right, the, yeah, list, yeah. Of the list of colors From that show Yeah so that I pitched that Because I was like And they were like What the hell is that I was like that, listen, listen to it Call it up You'll hear Of oh, yeah, and yellow and blue And uh, yeah. you know So then <laughs> Flanders did all that So Hilarious. yeah So that a lot of that stuff Comes from me
2: Love it I love the feel Of those musical numbers Because <clears throat> it has a certain Sort of comedy to it Just because it's so earnest I think Is part of it that it, it just adds so much to the texture
0: of yeah. the show. Oh, the one I want to mention too, I'm sorry, all these the memories are flooding back now. <laughs> it was the one we made up, which was a thing where Grandpa, this is a more recent season, by more recent, I mean maybe within the last 12 years. <laughs> anyway, I'm right <writing laughs> <that. laughs> Anyway, that Grandpa mentioned that he had all his money that he lost, and, And he was like, Why did you lose all my money? I invested in this musical about the life of Eddie Goodell starring Nathan Lane. And Eddie Goodell was the guy who was like a very short man of stature who was hired by a baseball team during World War II to stand in and be like a pinch hitter. And the joke was that he was so short that he would just get walked on four balls. I think I pitched that. I was like, I lost all my money on a Broadway musical about Eddie Goodell starring Nathan Lane. And then we had like a brief clip of the poster and we wrote like a little song for him singing look at this guy he's so short whatever it was like a little quick thing but I remember that too putting that in there those I are, love Nathan Lane by the way I love Nathan oh, Lane I so mean was, he's, yeah he's the best for sure, um, yeah.
1: th- those are always my favorite kind of jokes where it's like I remember as a kid I would just be laughing because I knew it was a joke but then it would be like it wouldn't be for 15 years later until I finally got what the joke was. Right. And that's the entire premise of our show is like... Right, it, because it's,
2: you, do, you don't always know what's actually a real reference and what's not. Like, yeah. that's always the thing. Like, for ages, uh, you know, and this is one of the ones we're going to cover this season, but neither Adam nor I knew that Paint Your Wagon was a real thing. <laughs> yeah. Right? We,
1: we just assumed that that was, a, that was a Simpsons joke. It was just right. a joke. Right, There's no yeah. way Clint Eastwood was in a Western musical. And yeah, then,
2: but as it turns out, it's like, not only is it a real musical, it's actually also by Lerner and Lowe. Yeah, <laughs> right? exactly. I mean, yeah, so, yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> Lee Marvin.
1: The, right. the surreal moment of hearing Rock Me Amadeus for the first time and, and yeah. going, well, this is the Dr. Zayas song, and someone going, no, Adam, like, that was a song in the 80s before you were <laughs> right. born.
2: Like, it's just... Right. But, <laughs> but, but on the flip side, like, you know, you thought for ages that... Uh, Streetcar Named Desire was a musical. Yes, I, I, Michael, I
1: famously asked my dad uh, to pick me up the cast recording of uh, Streetcar Named Desire, and he just kind of like gave me a look and was like, "It's not a real musical. <laughs> like, it's that's a, it's a it, it, we you, I can rent you the movie from Blockbuster. You're not going to enjoy right. it right. So you're like ten years old."
0: Yeah, no, I. It was. Oh, that is such a great up. Oh, god. I mean, that's- it's. That just brings to mind, like, this great guy who's not on the show anymore, but he was sort of probably, Jeff Martin was probably the driver of all those musical episodes in the early seasons, like the Barbershop Quartet, and, you know, because he was...
1: Because he wrote a lot of the songs, too, right?
0: Yeah, he's a really good musician and a great songwriter, and then he was a writer on the original David Letterman's show and okay. he used to play this guy called the actor singer this is way before your time but he would come out and do this thing like i'm an actor singer hi how are, Dave, how are you are you are you an actor uh, actually i'm an actor singer an actor singer okay great and then like there would be some fake calamity where like a light would fall or something right. and he would die and then paul schaefer would go
3: he's dead he's dead oh my god it should have been me oh.
0: i just remember that really well that's jeff martin who is was a really, really brilliant songwriter and I'm sure largely behind those musical numbers in right. most of those early For season sure. episodes. Well, so we'd love to dive into the movie, but before we do, I did
2: have one last question. Did sure. you know that there's a beer named after this episode? No! And <laughs> I have there to is. get it now. It's uh, Yeah, it is an award-winning Scotch Ale from the Behemoth Brewing Company in New Zealand. Go is, it,
0: is it called My Fair Laddie? It's called My Ale? Fair
2: Laddie. It's even got like the label it looks like it's inspired by the wow. episode.
0: Oh my god! All right, I'm gonna go get it as soon as yeah. I'm done with this. I'm gonna go yeah. order some. Yeah, they uh, apparently
2: they have a bunch of Simpsons sort of themed ones. The other one that I saw that was pretty funny was what they describe as a dank IPA called Otto's Jacket. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I thought that's really good. That's really really good. good.
0: That's <laughs> that's really, really good. <laughs>
1: Well, now that we've sort of picked your brain about your history with the show, let's actually tuck into the movie itself. One of the things we always like to do is we always try and sum the movie up in one sentence. So, Mike, how would you describe My Fair Lady in one sentence?
0: (laughs) All right. The world's biggest jerk... (laughs) Good start. (laughs) ...takes takes a sweet but uneducated young lady, tortures her... (laughs) Yeah. Until she can talk like a sophisticated English woman, treats her like dirt, <laughs> is a complete idiot and jerk, uh, and then for some reason she still falls in love with him. Yeah. That that songs. That's, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's basically it. It's three and, a half, or
1: three and a half hours to get to there. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Yeah.
0: Um, <laughs> and that oh, Coda. And at the end, even when she comes back to him. He's still, still the world's jerk. biggest jerk. Yeah, still, a, oh, still yeah. a giant Turk. Yeah, <laughs> learned nothing. Learned Love no that. this nothing. Well, I guess that's open to interpretation. But. It's I, true. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll and
1: there. we, we <laughs> will we'll get into this because I had an issue with, it, but there's a subplot with her father for some
0: reason. Right, like, that's a whole. Yeah,
2: yeah. There's a, a few B plots that kind of right, <laughs> whatever.
0: Well, um, occasionally you need the father to show up just to to do like a real happy, fun song that like <laughs> right. takes you away from. The main plot of this awful guy and what he's doing to this young lady.
2: It's true. He does lighten the mood a little bit. Yeah. So usually after this, we'd find some kind of like archival description, right? Like from a poster or something like that. I actually weirdly couldn't find one, um, but I did find uh, a pretty good quote from Roger Ebert on the subject. So he just said, uh, it is unnecessary to summarize the plot or list the songs. If you're not familiar with both, you are culturally illiterate, although... In six months, I could pass you off as a critic at Cannes, or even a clerk in a good video store, which requires better taste. <laughs> which I That was pretty good. That's um, good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's true. It's one of those shows that I feel like you just, everybody kind of knows, and yeah. you don't really know how you know it necessarily, but it's just yeah. part of the culture, I guess.
0: I think it's even a thing, too, because like, I remember seeing the movie way long ago when I was younger, and like... And I knew the songs and I knew the story, you know, and then I watched it when I wrote this episode and I kind of remembered it again. But then you sort of think, oh, it's, you know, she's, ah, she talks cockney and then he teaches her to be nice and everything like, oh, that's fun. But then the the real, I mean, it's difficult stuff. And and then, you know, my wife and I were in New York a few years ago and we saw the Broadway Lincoln Center mm. revival of the show with Lauren Ambrose and um, all those great people. And it was like, that was Stupendously great. But I was like, wow, this is difficult. You know, they, they yeah. tackled it really interestingly. And, you know, it's more of a modern take on, right. on this battle between the sexes. Uh, you're watching the old movie, it's sort of like, <laughs> I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent, but there was like a whole strain in those days of like these guys, like the Henry Higgins, Rex Harrison, like the confirmed bachelor. I would never have a woman in my life. A woman will destroy your life. Who wants a woman? You know, it's like, geez, dude. But like, because there's another movie that came out around that same time that I can't recommend enough if you want to get a, a view into what the mindset was. It's not a musical, but it stars Jack Lemmon and it's called How to Murder Your Wife. And Jesus. it was a big hit comedy and it's about a guy who's a comic strip artist who lives in New York the bachelor lifestyle he has Terry Thomas as his butler and he gets drunk at a party and he accidentally like marries this beautiful sexy italian woman as you do and, right yeah and yeah. like he's married to her and he's like oh i'm married to this now you know and she's like unbelievable she's stunning <laughs> And like she, but she turns the household upside down because she wants to cook spaghetti and in, in the whatever. And then it turns into this whole thing where his character that he writes, his comic strip character, he gets her married in the comic strip too because he writes his comic strip based on what's going on in his life. And so, he he has the comic strip character plot to murder her. So then it looks like he actually did murder her, and he goes on trial for oh. murdering her because she disappears. <laughs> it turns out she left to go to Italy to be with her mother because she's mad at him. But there's a whole big scene where he has this. He has a scene where he talks to the guy, and he goes like. He goes. Just imagine, if there's a button right here. If you push that button, your wife would just poof. We just disappear forever, right? He says that's that's a climactic thing. Jeez. And then all the all twelve men in the jury, like suddenly go leaping, like trying to push this imaginary button. Right. Like, it's that kind of misogyny Jeez. that is so bizarre. Yeah. I, I recommend it just for just for the cultural anthropology of it. But what? that's sort of what's going on with this guy. Like, uh, a woman. Who wants a woman in your life? Like, that song goes on for, like, 11 minutes about yeah. a woman in your totally. life. Well, and it's anyone.
2: not even... It's, like, not the first song and not the last song about no, that, no, no, right.
0: Well, we, the first
1: film we watched for this, this whole entire podcast, the, the very first episode, was James Bond, You Only Live Twice. And we spent most of the episode talking about just the, like, <laughs> casual misogyny that was just, like, oh, totally normal. Crazy. And the racism. Like, I mean, it's just oh, a right. whole... Yeah. But yeah, it was a very different time, yeah. clearly. But um, so you sort of addressed this already. But your first exposure, you were saying to the to the show, was like sort of through the cast album, and then eventually yeah. you saw the film. Nate, what what about you? Did, had you seen this before this
2: week? So no, I am one of the uh, culturally illiterate, um, <laughs> you know, who who had never seen it, never seen the stage play, and so I, probably my first. Exposure where I, like, really knew what My Fair Lady was was probably on The Simpsons. It was probably, I think it's, yeah, season 13, The Sweetest Apu, right, where Manjula gets Apu to perform My Fair Lady with the octuplets um, to, like, you know, get back on her good graces. And that's probably my first exposure was, like, Apu saying, Eliza, (laughs) you know,
0: (laughs) anyway. Where the devil are my slippers?
1: So, yeah, Adam, what about you? in around 2002, I want to say, early 2000s anyway, the Stratford Festival in Stratford, Ontario, which is a predominantly Shakespearean festival, but for the last 30 some odd years has also been doing musicals. And it started off sort of being like of a certain era and then they've branched out and sort of gotten more modern. But at the time they were sort of doing all of the golden age of musical kind of musicals. And so they did a production of My Fair Lady that my parents took me and my sister to go see. And I guess before we went or after we went, I can't remember exactly what the timing was, but we rented the movie to watch it. But I, I, I don't think I watched, I think, because back then I was like, well, I'm going to go see the show. I don't need to watch the movie. But I guess for my sister's sake, so she could like understand the plot, because she was a little bit younger. So I was familiar with the stage show, but I don't think I ever ended up actually seeing the film. And I had kind of, like, forgotten most of it. Like, I knew the basic sort of structure of, like, yeah, you know, Cockney, this guy comes along, he's gonna make her a woman, he succeeds, because, like, that trope has sort of echoed throughout pop culture for the last you know, 60-some-odd years or whatever. But yeah, I I hadn't ever seen the film and I was, so it was sort of interesting to, like, dig into that and I must admit that I kind of went in with trepidation, if only because of the runtime. I was like, ooh, this is gonna be, it's one of those, eh? One of those... Full-on three and a half hour adaptations. Like
2: this is, this is another part of Adam's pathology as an editor <laughs> is that he can't handle anything that's like long. He's always looking it's for the long. thing that could be it's cut. So it is long. long. It is long. It's, it's so long, and it
1: doesn't need to be. No, I there's know. A good,
2: there's a good argument for some of the length. I think. But we'll get into it. The well, okay. So basically, what I anyway. what I
1: call it is: this is not an adaptation; this is a translation. It's like what I was reading early on in my research was that this is one of the only, if not the only, Learner and Low adaptation where it's everything. They didn't yeah, cut a single yeah, sure. number. They didn't cut, like it's the whole yeah. thing from start to finish. And yeah. again, when you're in a the theater, three and a half hour, you know, you want to get your money's worth, especially nowadays. And you've got the intermission, and it's fine; it works at-home viewing, you know, it's
2: on your TV. It's not what it's made for.
1: No, it's not what it's designed for, obviously, but it's not really adapting it for the medium. All the B-plot with the father, which, to your point, like, yes, it's sort of giving some levity, but it's not really adding anything. Like, I would lose all that. Uh, I would cut down on some <laughs> the of the... two le-
0: best songs in the show. Oh, film. Yeah, I know, they are, like, <laughs> the two, the great two songs. Best, <laughs> they are great songs, and that's probably why you have to keep them, but at the same
1: time, it's like... No, I know, yeah. I I No, I know, them. I understand,
0: I get it. Yeah, It's a B-plot.
1: No, one of the numbers is, like, when the staff are singing Poor Professor Higgins, and I'm like, I understand why this scene exists in a stage production, but in a film, I'm like, what is this doing here? Like, you (laughs) could just do a montage, like, a proper montage. Like, it's, so it just, that was my biggest takeaway from this film, is that it does...
2: It's an interesting counterpoint, though, because the first one we did for this series was On the Town, Mm -hmm. and... They completely shred the original <laughs> yeah. musical it's like it's like a completely different show and like i think most of the ones that we're going to watch kind of fall more in that camp of like they take out most of the numbers they replace them with completely new numbers and they still aren't necessarily great adaptations either there are very few that kind of fall in that like perfect middle ground where they're mostly intact but they like make some smart changes to kind of make it more palatable as a movie yeah. and really take advantage of the medium and all of that so anyway
0: yeah, because even in this, like, there's that whole big number they sing at Ascot races, you know, where they're all like, right, which is funny on stage, but like, this goes on and on and forever, like how they're all just so proper that they can't get excited about the race. But that was basically like a filmed play, yeah, that part, except for like, the horses go by, which, you know, on Broadway, <laughs> you don't have that. But yeah, it's like, they just wanted to, I think it was like, the show had been a gigantic hit, like super hit on Broadway and they were like alright we're just gonna give the people that give them what they yeah. want
1: yeah and yeah. well yeah. I mean the one scene that stands out to me and Nate you have this in our notes but like I literally was like what is happening <laughs> is the scene where it's like all the people on the street and they just start yeah. like the they, tableaus they tableau and I'm like I know from my theatrical background that like this is a, a beautiful technique on stage sure. What is it doing in a movie? Yeah, like, yeah
0: that's not no point. That is
1: not the language of film. Like, there's a lot of weird choices like that. That just
0: I'm didn't... picturing like Jack L. Warner saying, "With the big cigar, you know, <laughs> yeah. you better have them tableaus in there. The people are going to expect that, you know." And like yeah. George George Cukor is like, "All right, whatever, you know." I, it, I don't know. So it's just Jack. It. But
1: well, okay. So let's let's maybe Nate, do you want to take us through sure. the actual background of the yeah, show yeah. because we're, we've danced around the show itself enough. Let's let's actually sort of talk about it here
2: yeah yeah so i have some facts i guess just to ground us in like where this comes from so the first thing i'll say is that like digging into this i found out that this movie is of course an adaptation of a broadway musical that is an adaptation of another movie that is an adaptation of a play that was inspired by a piece of ancient latin poetry (laughs) so it's this really interesting thing where it's kind of playing off of a lot of different versions of the same story right right Um, So it opens on Broadway in 1956. Of course, it's Alan J. Lerner doing the lyrics and Frederick Lowe doing the music. And before this, in terms of their stage career, they had done Brigadoon and Paint Your Wagon, right? Which we'll talk about more in a two from now. And then they go on to do Gigi and Camelot, and then they do film adaptations of all of them in a different order. So that's kind of interesting. Lerner was really involved with the films, but Lowe was not so much. He kind of said... Forget it, I don't really want to deal with that crap. (laughs) Of course, you know, I think as you said, Mike, already, it's based on the George Bernard Shaw play, Pygmalion, in 1913, but particularly My Fair Lady apparently was based on the 1938 film adaptation because basically Rodgers and Hammerstein actually tried to adapt Pygmalion into a musical first, and they just couldn't figure out how to do it because basically because Henry Higgins is such a jerk, and in the play there isn't a love story. Mm. They don't get together. And George Bernard Shaw was really adamant that they should not because it's based on this poem where basically Galatea, the sculpture, comes to life and sort of emancipates herself from right. from Pygmalion, her creator, right? And so he was like, no, 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 no. There's not a love story here. She frees herself and and, like, it's about her becoming a full person. And that's it, right? And so the trick was in 1938, I guess, George Bernard Shaw agreed to, write a sort of compromise script where they don't get together, but they kind of reconcile at the end. I see. And But then in the movie, they actually basically were like, no, no, it's a love story. They took that compromise ending and actually turned it into a full love story. So that gave Lerner and Lowe a way to kind of translate it into a musical. Um, And then the other trick, of course, is that they had Rex Harrison, where instead of building it around a great singer, they build it around a great actor, who can really make you kind of like this asshole more than kinda? In, in yeah. some cases, I hate to say it. I, well, yeah, he, he
1: steals the show for me. Like he's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, me too, for sure.
0: Well, it helps that he's actually singing, and Audrey Hepburn isn't really singing. But, uh, <laughs> well, there is that too. Yeah, you know, <laughs> right. she's being dubbed. But uh, <laughs> yeah, and you know, the cool thing—maybe you're already say this—is that they kind of invented like the lavalier microphone for him. Yeah. So, because th- normally, though, you see everybody else is like a track that they pre-recorded yeah. and they're mouthing to. It's like I don't do that. That's not how I do it. You know. So all his stuff is like live audio on set, which is great. It makes his performance better than, yeah, than and just. Uh,
1: and it's still a very difficult thing for them to do technically. Like, I mean, Les Mis, the film adaptation, you know, was sort of famous for using that as their sort of a award- reason to give us awards as we did that. And oh, look how difficult it was. But the fact that they did it back then makes it even more impressive because like you said yeah like radio mics the technology was not what it was today and, and it, i do think that his performance is improved by the fact that he isn't being hampered by this sort of pre-recorded you stick to what you did six months yeah. earlier in the recording studio he's able yeah. to sort of try new things and you know really
0: perform
2: but... totally yeah he was kind
0: of like a really they used to call him sexy rexy like he was sort of like the women <laughs> loved him and everything you know i mean He's a good performance, but, like, the character is just a real difficult character. Well,
1: I mean, the character is awful, but I, I, like, even, I really hate to say this, but every time he insults her, I laughed out loud because, like, his insults are funny, like, and his
2: delivery. Yeah. It's, it's shocking, and, well, they're really clever.
1: They're well, I, and I I, I I, sort of equated it, Mike, to Basil Fawlty. That's who he kind of reminded me of. It's like, he's, he's this despicable human that you kind of can't help but like because he's very funny and like he's very erudite and like the way he speaks like this and he gets so why are you throwing your slippers at me like it's just it's so (laughs) like there's something to his performance that is just so magnetic despite like you said he has no charm to him but I genuinely cannot imagine anyone but Rex Harrison in the role now because like Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anybody else it's just like to thread that needle must be so difficult. It yeah. is weird
0: too he's so much older than her too. I mean, yeah. that's the thing. Like the production by on Broadway, the guy who played Henry Higgins that, he was younger, seemed like more age appropriate. Right. <laughs> you know, and Rex Harrison is so old too, like much older than her than Audrey Hepburn early like he appears to be. Yeah, she's, she's like apparently 20, 20
2: years older. Right? They think, said she's twenty one or something. Yeah, so they say right? she's twenty one. I'm like, ah, uh, well, okay, yeah, yeah. that's
0: well, a, a yeah. stretch. But yeah, I, no, she's that's like, true.
2: yeah, yeah. She's supposed to be. I think she's actually thirty five in the role, and he's right. in his fifties. Right. So yeah, yeah it's huge so, age. Yeah, gap, So yeah, still for a huge sure. age gap. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, the you know the show obviously, like you said, Mike, it's a it's a hit, right? Sweeps the Tonys. It set a record with two thousand seven hundred seventeen performances in its original wow. run. Wow and it becomes the highest-grossing Broadway show of all time at about $10 million. And, of course, the original cast recording was, like, the best-selling album in the U.S. in 1956. So, you know, by all accounts, like, a huge, huge success, right? Um, And then in terms of the film adaptation, they were originally going to actually give it to Vincent Minnelli, uh, but he asked for too much money, so so that didn't work (laughs) out. Joshua Logan, who, again, we're going to talk about more down the road with Paint Your Wagon also was originally offered the role of director, but the offer was withdrawn because he wanted to shoot on location. Again, something that will come back with Paint Your Wagon. And Lerner was also sort of pissed off that they didn't allow them to shoot on location in London. So obviously the director ends up being George Cukor. You know, he'd been going since the 1930s, but some of the other ones that sort of stood out to me were Philadelphia Story, um, Gaslight, which is where we get Mm -hmm. the term gaslighting and A Star is Born the first remake of it um, so he's you know it's yeah,
1: the, Ju- the Judy Garland one though
2: right the or... Judy Garland right I think so 1954 yeah yeah so yeah, that's, that's the, the,
1: the, 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 the sort of like famous right because there's been so many remakes of it it's hard to right. track but yeah that is yeah. The, the sort of the original iconic even though it's right. not the original but yeah
0: every single one of them ends with the guy peeing himself on, <laughs> on the Grammy Awards
1: yeah yeah That's that's baked in yeah interestingly enough yeah exactly <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So, so, yeah, so basically, you know, a little bit more on QCOR. He's the heart of Hollywood's underground gay scene at this mm. point and was sort of known for holding parties where, you know, closeted showbiz types could, like, come openly with their dates and just, like, be together. So that's kind of interesting. But he did try to kind of keep his personal life and his professional life very separate. Right. A lot of people kind of disparagingly called him a woman's director mm. um, as a way to, I think, kind of, like, discount his work and all of that mm-hmm. but it is very weird because of course he worked with lots of leading men as well um and his movies had a lot of like crossover appeals so it's i don't really know what they meant by that i guess um, <laughs> right, other than yeah. to just kind of say uh, yeah no he's not a serious director
1: i read somewhere that he also did like some uncredited directing work on gone with the wind which you know yes is right uh, <laughs> not
0: nothing to shake a stick I at i think gone know. with the wind started out as him directing it, or and he was replaced by Victor Fleming, or the other way around, or somewhere right. in there. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And, then, and, the, and the Wizard of true. Oz is somewhere in the mix there, too, somewhere. Yeah, there. But, yeah. Uh, yeah,
2: for sure. So, you know, pretty accomplished director. You can see a lot of that lineage, I think, in this movie as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and then, you know, again, this is also a huge hit, right? At, at $17 million, it was the most expensive Warner Brothers movie produced at the time. But nevertheless, it went on to become the second highest grossing movie of the year at like thirty million dollars. So wow. it beats out Goldfinger for context mm. this year. Okay. Right? Wow. <laughs> but is is beat out by a hair by Mary Poppins, of
1: course. Ah um, interesting. Right. Yeah,
3: interesting. Yeah.
2: So there's a, a real rivalry here. You know, yeah. there's more to that story and we can talk about. And then it also sweeps the Oscars again, right? Wins Best Picture, Best Actor in a Leading Role, Best Director, Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Sound, and Best Adapted Score, Uh, and it's also nominated for Best Actor in a Supporting Role, Best Actress in a Supporting Role, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Editing. Wow, (laughs) which is pretty wild. Uh, Who was nominated
0: for Best Actress in a Supporting Role? Like the Henry Higgins' mother or something? Yeah, yeah. Wow, it's bizarre. I mean, she was fine.
2: She, I mean, she's, the role is pretty small, but yeah. No, yeah. And then the uh, father, Alfie, is also nominated. Go right.
0: figure. Well, he was in the original Broadway cast of that too, Stanley right. Holloway. Yeah, right,
2: so. and the and the mother was actually reprising her role from the most recent adaptation of Pygmalion. Oh, uh, interesting. Super weird. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, but notably but yeah, the,
1: absent in that list of Oscar nominations, mm. Nate, it was was a certain right. yeah. Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. Not nominated for who, the Oscar. Who did win that Oscar for Best <laughs> Actress in yeah, so Yes, we'll get that, there.
0: Yeah. We'll yeah. get
2: there. All right, well, so that's kind of it on the big picture background. So let's dive into the movie. So, you know, in this opening scene, right, I think the opening is fantastic. It's, it's one of those perfect openings where it really sort of encapsulates, like, all the themes of the movie and the aesthetic and everything, like, right up front, right? It starts with, you know, you were saying it doesn't have a lot of sort of movie language, I guess, in it. But I mm-hmm. think the opening's pretty good for that, where there's, like, this sort of montage of just, like, people coming out of the theater, right? Yeah. Starts Actually, I think the, maybe the first shot is flowers, right?
1: And well, then, the, uh, the titles is all, all the close-ups of the flowers, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And, then, and then you see the people leaving the theater, they come out into the London streets that are getting darker and dirtier by the second when it starts to rain and all of that, and then you get, like, Eliza selling flowers, right? So I, I love this setup. It's kind of like an upstairs-downstairs sort of vibe where you're getting like okay here are the upper classes and here are the lower classes right here but yeah anything else jump out at you for this sort of opening montage or how did you feel about it
0: yeah did a pretty good job setting it all up you know it's interesting like in those days too like the first four minutes are like the Broadway Mm -hmm. overture which is like this is from an era when like these movies would play it was called roadshow engagements where it was literally like going to the theater so uh, anyway but yeah this gets it sets the scene pretty well but again I would say like towards what you already said earlier like you could probably get to get to the action a little bit quicker. <laughs> so many scenes of guys getting into carriages and whatever, but yeah, yeah
2: for sure, for sure. They're really building the world very, very slowly here.
1: Well, I think the thing that it sort of immediately announces, though, is the level of production design and and cinematography. Right. Like it, we're gonna see. I was genuinely surprised when I read that this was all shot on sound stages you know you think of like wizard of oz and like it's a beautiful film but you can tell that they're on sound stages whereas this like especially the scenes with freddy when they're out in the streets of london like you really wouldn't necessarily think that that's a set like it's very very convincing so the i was immediately sort of struck by just like the visuals which i think kind of eased me into like okay i'm gonna enjoy this a lot more than i think Mm
2: -hmm. I, i was going to so yeah for sure i think you know one of the things that struck me thinking about it in retrospect was that flowers are such a good like metaphor you know in this movie as something that kind of moves between classes right mm. um you know because you have the flower girl and then you have the people who buys the flowers right and where are the flowers displayed and all of that so i thought you know watching the intro and thinking about it afterwards was like oh yeah that actually makes a hell of a lot of sense
0: yeah, yeah anyway it also reminds me a little bit that, like, I think this is supposed to be, like, the St. Paul's Cathedral or whatever across the street from the Opera House. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it made me think of Mary Poppins because that's where, I think, very similar. You could see, like, the bird lady, I think. Yeah. From Mary yeah, yeah, Poppins yeah. is sort of in the same spot. It's more or less the oh, yeah. same time period. You know, you could have a crossover. Why couldn't Mary Poppins come flying through and uh, <laughs> help Eliza? Anyway, that's... That'll be another thing. We'll do that someday in the in the extended universe. Well, but right? that's a, that's
1: a this is a great segue because let's ta- let's we've danced around it enough. Let's, yeah, yeah, talk, let's about talk about Eliza that. and let's specifically talk about the whole Julie Andrews thing. So Julie Andrews was originally cast in the Broadway production, was right. heralded for her performance, and by the time the movie rolls around, you know everyone's assuming, okay, well she's going to play the role, and Jack Warner basically says, no, you're not. You're a nobody. We need it. We need an actual star. And, you know, she was apparently, you know, didn't love that. And so they hire Audrey Hepburn, who was a star and uh, was under the impression that she would be singing the role. And then turns out that she was later dubbed in post by Marnie Nixon, I believe her name was, who, that's, that's who famously right. dubbed Natalie Wood in West Side Story. I, I did a bunch right. of people, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: but basically, and like, I think. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I'm just going to throw out some trivia here. I want to make sure I got it right. Uh, I want to say she's like Lenny Kravitz's mother or something. Or Oh, interesting. really? Uh, <laughs> I, so that's what I'm saying. I could be totally wrong. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Her son was named Andrew Gold. Who who was a recording star in the '70s and he wrote the song "Thank You for Being a Friend" that okay, was the yeah. theme song to Golden Girls. Yeah. Anyway, oh. Lenny Krav- Lenny Kravitz's mother was on the Jeffersons, the TV show. The Jeffersons. Okay. okay. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> close
1: enough. Yeah, close yeah. enough. So you know. Hepburn is dubbed when she finds out she's dubbed she says you know if I had known that I never would have accepted the role and then there was like this back and forth where the Warners were saying like oh no there's not as much dubbing as you think there is but there actually was and like there are little bits and pieces of Hepburn singing that made the final edit but not a lot of it they say allegedly that's why she wasn't nominated for the award for best actress right? Which famously then ends up being won by Julie Andrews for Mary Poppins, mm-hmm. and in her acceptance speech,
2: it's in the Golden Globes.
1: You're kidding! I oh, looked it up. Oh wow! So, oh. so in the in
2: the Golden Globes, they were both nominated, and Julie Andrews beat her out. And in her expe- acceptance speech, I actually got the quote. She says,
0: "Thank you very much for this lovely honor. It's a wonderful memento of a very, very happy time." Finally, my thanks to a man who made a wonderful
2: movie and who made all this possible in the first place, Mr. Jack Warner.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I mean, it is is such a great moment because, like, the audience, like, loses it. Yeah, yeah,
2: you literally hear a scream from the audience. Yeah, it's, 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 I mean... Kind of a classic Julie Andrews, too. You know, I mean, it's funny because she plays these roles that are so nice and all this sort of stuff. But whenever she gives an interview, she is just dropping bombs. It's so great. She's I, I so she's a very yeah. funny lady.
1: But yeah. uh, all of this is to say, what is everybody's thoughts on Hepburn as Doolittle? Because I, maybe this is a hot take, I didn't love, and i spent most and maybe this is just colored by my knowledge of the fact that it could have been julie andrews and i was just playing whataboutism or whatever but like i spent most of the movie being like i i just wish that this was julie andrews because i feel like she would have done this part yeah justice
0: i thought she was good i you know i'd say that it's there's no escaping the fact even from the moment you see her even though they put her in this like little hat and the but she's Audrey Hepburn, you know. Like that I think that's what it is, you know. And Julie Andrews had a little bit of like her nose a little turned up, you know, like mm-hmm. she had a little bit of a more of a look like a real person. And Audrey Hepburn just she couldn't help it. She's like incredibly yeah. beautiful and glamorous. And even though they put like the smudgy soot on her face, you know, she's Audrey Hepburn. You know, I thought her acting was fine, but uh, yeah, that was the hard part. I had was like you just can't get past the fact when that, when
1: she comes out at the at the the Ascot race, like. That's when you're like, okay, well, now I understand why you've cast Audrey Hepburn because she's mm-hmm. stunning, and the reveal of that dress—it's it, such an iconic visual—and mm-hmm. I do think she's great there. And there's a moment near the end of the movie where after they come back from the gala or the ball or whatever it is, and um, they've essentially they've succeeded, and Higgins and Pickering have been like,
2: "Oh, we did it, we did,"
1: it. and like the whole time she's sort of just like in the back of the scene, just sort of listening and. They're not addressing her at all, and then they sort of, they're like, oh, I'm going to go off to bed, and and she's just sort of there, and she's just walking through the, the library, and like, I, the, 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 my heart literally broke,
2: broke open. She doesn't say yeah. anything, and it's such yeah. an,
1: that is, I think, her best performance in the whole yeah. thing. Yeah, that's the
2: thing for me, is like, she's not, I don't think that she's great at the comedy of the mm-hmm. show. But and, and I think because there's a lot of like in the ascot race section, like that should be hilarious. And I don't think she totally nails it. I also whenever she has the um, Cockney accent on, I'm kind of like, it's a little, it's just a little too much. But like once she's like, you know, speaking in basically like her actual voice yeah. and uh, and also like in the serious scenes, like whenever it's her and Higgins going head to head, that's when I'm like, man, she's great in this. Yeah. And then some of the other parts, I'm kind of like, eh, yeah. And I'd be curious, I mean, I've never, you know, I've never actually seen, you know, um, yeah, Andrews in the role. So, like, I'd be curious right. how she does all of those, like, balances all of those things. Like, it, does she nail those, like, serious scenes in the same way? Or is she really, like, the transformation and the singing, is that really her forte and the humor, of course? Um, so, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of a mixed bag, I think, for me. So what about Henry Higgins? So the first scene, you know, again, we get him coming in. He sort of delivers, like, sort of the thesis of the of the, of the movie about the class distinctions and accents and all of this. But, yeah, what did we think about uh, Sexy Rexy coming in here? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I said it already. Like, I think the film is worth watching for his performance alone. Like, it's simultaneously, like, it, it's very funny. And I think that was the thing that really sort of struck me from you know, the off was like, Oh, like I'm laughing out loud at this thing. And I was not expecting to, I didn't remember, you know, the things I remember from my fair lady are like the, the black and white costumes. And I remember all the songs. I didn't remember it being a funny show. And so, yeah, I was just surprised at how well he was nailing the comedy. And again, it's just like, part of it is his voice, that distinguished sort of, you know, British RP accent yeah, supposedly, just, supposedly
2: Stewie on Family Guy is modeled after him. I believe it. Yeah, that totally, <laughs> you know, that totally that tracks. makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
1: but I guess the thing that is sort of remarkable about all of this is that allegedly, or for whatever reason, like he can't sing, or they mostly just yeah. have him speak sing throughout this yeah. thing, which is yeah. this weird choice that it's like well it's a musical like why are you hiring someone who can't say... I mean granted like I'm glad they did because again the performance is amazing mm-hmm. but I, I so I did a little bit of research into this whole speak singing thing so apparently there's a there's a german term for this called uh, Sprechensisang I, I definitely butchered that my German is, I you know, it's not good but it dates back to sort of like the turn of the 20th century and specifically the second Viennese school and I, this is, I'm just gonna read this quote from Wikipedia that sort of like talks about what it is, so it says Indicated rhythm should be adhered to but whereas in ordinary singing a content pitch is maintained through a note here the singer immediately abandons it by falling or rising. The goal is certainly not at all a realistic, naturalistic speech. On the contrary, the difference between ordinary speech and speech that collaborates in a musical form must be made plain. But it should not be called singing either. And so the other famous example of speak singing that comes to mind to me is, of course, The Music Man, which is famously referenced on an episode of The Simpsons that we we were we both in Aiden are like, we're not touching it. We just, <laughs> like we can't that like no, we're not going there but The Music Man was one of the first musicals I saw also at Stratford and I I love it but it also famously has this like leading man mm-hmm. character who doesn't really sing he basically yeah. just speaks rhythmically but what I thought was interesting and Mike you can sort of I guess c- corroborate this for us was I went I was curious if this was just like a Rex Harrison thing or if it sort of permeated the show for the rest of time I grabbed the cast recording for the Broadway revival and it seems like Higgins actually does
2: sing more in that version
0: yeah he did he did yeah so it's this
2: interesting choice of like i think well i think the thing that's interesting though is that like from my understanding the part was written for rex harrison right and so it's like they knew that he couldn't sing and so they wrote the music in such a way that one could speak sing it i think that's kind of the like the origin of it because Mm -hmm. it's like the melodies that he's singing are also not like demanding melodies in the first place, right?
0: Right, that's true. I will say too that there's a change has occurred like over the last whatever few decades in terms of that. Because my wife is a actress, or she writes now, but she used to act and did a lot of musical where like you used to be able to get away with like being like just an amazing personality on stage who could sing, kinda sing pretty good, you know, but it was more about like this amazing like the performance, you know, and the character. And now it's much more like everybody is just amazing singers that are coming out of these like conservatories and stuff so like for instance i saw the revival of hello dolly a few years ago that bet midler was in she was fantastic but the the guy playing um this part called cornelius hackle who's the young guy you know that was played originally by charles nelson riley on Broadway. <laughs> uh, and he's great i mean i heard the on, in the cast album he's great yeah but he's not like he's not like the greatest singer of all time no. but like you get who this guy is and the guy who did it on Broadway, his name is Gavin Creel, is excellent. Oh yeah, excellent singer. He's in Into the Woods right now, I think. But like, it just didn't have the same whatever. So like, that's just a, There's more of a movement now towards like everybody on Broadway has to have like this an amazing singing voice and that kind of personality. Actor doesn't really get cast. Well, anymore.
1: even even the Music Man revival that just just closed on Broadway, you know, you have Hugh Jackman who is you know a f- phenomenal singer g- yeah. compared to Robert Preston who was not a phenomenal singer. But right. by all accounts, I did not see the show, so I can't say with any authority, but it's like very different kind of performance as a result of that. I personally would prefer right. a Robert Preston-esque performance yeah, yeah. than the right. Song and Dance Man Hugh Jackman
0: performance. But you're my right, friend, yeah. It's My favorite show of all time is Sweeney Todd. Mm-hmm. So, uh, And I saw the original... I'm old. So I saw the original <laughs> production of that with Canada's own Len Cario. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was phenomenal. He listened to the record. He's so good. He's a really good singer, but he's like really acting it. Yeah. And uh, they're getting ready to revive it now with Josh Groban, who mm-hmm. I know has an amazing voice. My worry is that he'll just like super sing it yeah. and he won't bring the acting chops that like a yeah. Len Cario had. So uh, I'm going to go see that with fingers, nails being bitten, you know, <laughs> so I'll hope that he can do it. Yeah, I'll be interested to see how that
1: show shapes up. But anyway, back to our <laughs> our regularly <originally> scheduled program. <laughs> So, uh, it turns out that uh, Michael Price's computer was about to die, and therefore, we had to sort of restructure the rest of this conversation. So, uh, don't worry, he will be returning uh, near the end of the episode, but for the next little bit, you're just going to be with your old pals, Nate and Adam, and it's not that, like, Michael's mad at us or doesn't agree with what we're saying, he's just, he's literally not here. Uh, Technology has failed us once again, but hey, at least he gave us as much time as he did, and we are very grateful. Thank you so much, Michael. Okay, now, on that note, let's get back to the episode.
2: All right, so let's talk a little bit about, like, the look and feel of this movie. So um, you were saying that you kind of were not sure about the use of the theatrical sort of elements. I kind of liked it, actually.
1: Really? Okay. Yeah. Interesting.
2: I, you know, I think they do a good job of setting it up really early on that this is going to be part of the language of the film. Right. It is very stagey, and it's kind of unexpected because the set feels so realistic. But, like, I think the whole movie has this sort of playing with like a lot of realism right it feels very real and then has these moments of abstraction and like the racetrack scene is where they like take it really really far where you know everyone's moving in unison it's almost like a dream sequence everyone's in the same tones of black white and gray except for the main characters that pop out and all of that kind of stuff i kind of liked that and it gives them some license to do interesting things But I agree that, like, you know, it would be nice to see them really use, like, film a little bit more, you know?
1: Yeah, I think it's just, again, it comes down to, I can't remember if we talked about this in the last episode or not, but the film adaptation of the musical adaptation of Matilda is on Netflix, and we watched it over the Christmas break, and that film does a really, really good job of establishing the rules of the universe right out of the gate. Sure. So it establishes with the first number that this is a musical-ass musical. There are going to be moments where we do very theatrical things, and there are going to be moments where we're a bit more realistic. And like, But we're going to move around, and it's going to be fine. If you don't buy in right now, you're not going to enjoy this ride. And I think that's what I felt about this, is that, like, it can't decide if it wants to be theatrical or if it wants to be realistic, and I, it doesn't establish those rules quickly enough for the audience to necessarily know. And again, I'm sure, like, I'm watching it in 2023 at home on my couch. I'm sure it's always a very different experience in a theater, and, and as Michael alluded to earlier, there's the whole idea of the roadshow where, like, you arrive and there's music playing and there's curtains closed and the curtains right. open, and, like, so it's, it's a very different experience that I'm not experiencing when I'm watching it this way so I'm recognizing that it's partly my own biases but yeah I guess part of it is just like I wanted it to use more of the language of cinema because like I think that's where great musical film adaptations succeed is that they recognize okay we are no longer bound by the restrictions of the theater the stage
3: Mm -hmm.
1: we can now do things that we couldn't do before so let's do that and this film's choice seems to be well screw that not only are we not going to do that we're going to do the things that we do on stage like tableaus which is just like it's such a don't get me wrong I do think the film is genuinely beautiful I think the cinematography the production design the costume design all of that stuff is amazing i think henry higgins library is like i want to live there it's, I could, it's great i mean i could smell the tobacco smoke and <laughs> scotch like right. leaking through the screen i mean I guess, and, and
2: i love that it sort of creates like a world unto itself yes filled with all of these like weird gizmos and stuff it's sort of the wild world of phonetics right there's like yeah. weird symbols and like tre- victrolas and the vowel sounds like right? yeah, yeah, yeah yeah it's great it's very like magical and I love that part of it but no I get what you're saying and there were moments like you know uh, when she starts doing the training right mm-hmm. I almost wish there was like a John G. Avildsen training montage yes. you know where it's just like okay and now we just see her doing a bunch of stuff and there's like some music like you could put a number a number over it. maybe poor Mr. Higgins is you know the like is going over top of that <laughs> yeah. montage but like it could have that could have been a lot faster and then other things could have had more room to breathe, yeah, you know, and, like, and
1: like, and granted, we are also like, we have to k- consider the time that the film is being made, like the Rocky style training montage, right? Like, it's invented been, by
2: John G. Ableton. yeah, like it hasn't
1: been invented yet. So yeah, like I, I yeah, again, it's 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 it's, it's sometimes difficult to yeah put things within context, but yeah, it's just that's what I mean. I just felt like the film was a little too literal in its adaptation than i necessarily wanted, and even like i think of other stuff at the time like you know mary poppins is a very magical movie that takes advantage of the medium and even yeah. things like sound of music like okay this is a thing where we sing a song about the hills in austria being alive well we're gonna we'll show you there. the hills like yeah, yeah, yeah. whereas this is like again the sets are impressive and i didn't realize that they were sets but it's they're still sets like and so it's things like that that i think it could have maybe benefited from but you know, yeah, who's, Who am I to say? For like, sure. Who do I know?
2: I mean, so I did come across a funny sort of another controversy on the, on the <laughs> set. Uh, not that it needed any more, but so Cecil Beaton, I guess, or Cecil, okay. I'm not sure. Cecil Beaton. He was the production designer or the, the, the costume designer for mm-hmm. the stage show and was brought okay. on for the movie as well. And he insisted in his contract that he would get full credit for the art direction of the movie. But as it turns out, he actually didn't design the sets at oh, all. Okay. It was actually done by Gene Allen, who worked with Cuker on A Star is Born previously. Gotcha. Um, but so apparently Cecil would come to the soundstage during lunch breaks, and he would actually sketch the sets so that afterward, in an exhibition, he could sort of pass them off as his own along with the other costumes. Jesus, and so what? Needless to say, Cuker and Cecil did not get along. He was very snap. pissed off. Yeah, what a gutter snipe, indeed. Yeah, geez, wow, so that's. I thought that was wild. that was a pretty interesting story. So, you know, this after this opening scene, and we get the sort of "I want" song of the show, which is yep. "Wouldn't It Be Loverly." It sort of sets off this whole thing where Eliza goes and finds Henry again after he sort of offhandedly is like, "Ah, I could transform this girl into a lady." She goes and finds him and is like, "Yeah, I'd actually like that. That would be good." And it starts this whole relationship between Eliza and Henry as he tries to disabuse her of her accent and help her learn how to be a member of high society and all this sort of stuff, right? The bet is actually between Henry Higgins and his friend, <laughs> uh, Colonel Pickering. Well, yes, the random man who came from India to meet yes, with him. Who's a fellow a him. fellow phoneticist, I guess, or something, yeah. and is just around for the whole movie, right? But then, you know, through this process, you kind of get this really interesting relationship that happens between Eliza and Henry. Maybe the definition of a love hate relationship, where he can't stand her and kind of can't stand women. He's a total misogynist, right? Like, literally, a misogynist. He hates women. Yeah. Uh, and says as much, right? Several times. <laughs> Literally several
1: has a song w- said, why can't a woman be more like a man?
2: Right.
3: Yes, why can't
1: a woman
2: be more like a man?
1: Right. There's an entire song dedicated so to this honest. premise.
0: Why can't a woman
1: be like that?
2: Right. And she also can't really stand him, right? She has her whole song.
0: Just you white in me, again, just you white.
2: Where she's sort of talking about how she's going to show him she fantasizes about having the king execute <laughs> yeah. him. Um, So, you know, it's very contentious, but they also are sort of building this relationship over time. And I think, for me, this is the best argument for some of the runtime of this show, is Mm. that you kind of need the time to buy that they're building something more than just hatred towards each other, right? Right. To kind of see how their relationship evolves. I, I agree that, like, especially, like, the father character and all of his numbers feels like a big you know B plot. The stuff with Freddy is also complicated.
1: And, and to be clear, I I sorry, I want to I want to clarify something about the father. Is that like I understand why within the context of a stage production, that character sure. should exist and does exist because, you, like I said, you've got two acts, you've got to fill out those acts. There are always <laughs> yeah. those sort of numbers with the sort of side characters. Right, that, like, right. And c- comedic relief and, like, uh, all of yeah. that makes sense. But yeah. within the context of the film, the character adds nothing, contributes nothing, and right. really just feels like Filler. padding out this already long... Right. For, which, again... The plot is very, very straightforward. Like, it's not like right. we're dealing with a complicated plot over the course of this three-plus hours. Right. Like, it's a very straightforward plot. Yeah. And but I, I think, see your point.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, with that character, too, like, in the context of the original play, right, the play is very, it's essay-like, right? It's trying to make mm-hmm. all these arguments, and so yeah. he, he he even gets, like, identified by some American industrialist as a gr- one of England's great moralists, right? And and it's because he's, like, making an argument about, like, how society works. So, like, yeah, it adds thematic depth and stuff. But, man, when the runtime's already long, it feels like a whole lot of extra stuff. I also think the stuff with Freddy, right, who is Mm -hmm. Eliza's other possible suitor, also feels really out of place to me. Because it doesn't go anywhere, basically, in, in the context of the movie, it's kind of just this, like, extra character who loves Eliza, but then, you know, what happens with that?
1: Did you recognize the actor who was playing him?
2: No. I didn't okay,
1: so, I, and maybe I'm getting our mutual interests confused, but the actor's name is Jeremy Brett. Does that name mean anything to you? No. Okay, so Jeremy Brett is perhaps best known, at least to me, he was in the Granada television adaptations of Sherlock Holmes that were on A and E when we were kids.
2: Oh, okay. Do you I'm remember sure those? I, wa- I don't, yeah. but I'm sure I watched them. Yeah. So anyway,
1: like they were famous because they literally, like, I'm pretty sure they adapted like every single one of the Sherlock Holmes stories, oh, and wow. he sort of gives what many consider to be like the definitive on-screen Sherlock Holmes performance. So when I saw his name in the opening credits, I was like. Jeremy that right, like, guy sherlock holmes and then like he c- comes up and he's so young like he, yeah. he has this like christopher reeves-esque like mm-hmm. i i literally was like this guy could play superman like he's so handsome yeah but yeah so anyway i thought that was super interesting it's always interesting for me when you see we talked about this with um dr strangelove when like james earl jones shows <laughs> right. up when he's like super young it's sure he's icons of Film and television when they're in their like mm-hmm. early roles, so. in, yeah,
2: minor roles, yeah, totally. But
1: but it is such a minor, nothing role. Like he's got a couple He doesn't have a
2: lot of character to him. He's just kind of a generic leading. No, man. he's got
1: a couple nice songs, but and ultimately, like she doesn't end up with him, so I don't really know what the purpose right. of his
2: character is. Well, you know, it's kind of like he's a threat to um to Henry, the non Higgins.
1: romance, yeah, that ish
2: know, ish. He's clearly jealous of them that's that's very clear but maybe romantically or maybe not that's kind of the thing might just be that he's jealous of the fact that she wants to leave and spend her life with him instead of be in his life and anyway yeah it's a weird thing but i actually one of my favorite numbers in the show is show me which Mm. is when she kind of finally comes out onto the street and he's there pining after her and and she's like enough with the words like if you love me, show me, and it's a—it's yeah. just a really great
0: number.
3: You're on fire, show me. Here we are together in the middle of the
1: night. Don't talk of spring, just hold me tight. So let's—I mean, let—let's just get to the sort of crux of this whole thing. Is right. like you texted me shortly after being like, "Oh, I think this is interesting because it's not a romance," <laughs> and yeah, I don't disagree with you, but I don't know that the film would agree with you.
2: It's interesting. So I
1: guess that's my question, is, like, at the end, like, we we keep saying, like, oh, they love each other. Do they love each other? Like, I don't, I find the ending so difficult because Mm -hmm. I don't really know what I'm supposed, like, it's very ambiguous in a way that I'm not expecting from a movie from this era.
2: Right. And so this is the thing. This is, for me, the crux of this movie is that, like, I watched it and immediately after I was like, that was pretty good. And then the following day, I was still thinking about it mm. and still like, what was that all about? Like what, <laughs> what actually was going on there? And like, to me, that's kind of what surprised me most about this and made me like it so much is right. that like, I have problems with the ending, particularly, I think like the, why Eliza comes back is not super clear. And she, you know, even though she's the driving force of most of the plot, you don't ever get to see her change her mind. You no. see... You see him change his mind. And she's like committed in the last scene to like leaving and going and doing her own thing. And then she just shows up, right? That I don't love. But the fact that like at the end of the movie, you don't really know what all of that means. Like she comes back. Are they a couple now? Are they going to get together? Or is something else going on, right? Did they just reconcile and all that? Because like, here's what I would say. It's kind of set up like it's a love story. But every time they have an opportunity to make it clear, they don't. Right. Right? All of the songs, like, you know, the perfect example, of course, is I've Grown Accustomed to Her Face, right?
0: She almost makes the day begin.
2: I've grown accustomed to the tune that she whistles night and noon. Her smiles, her frowns, her ups, her downs are second nature to me now. That song would be the perfect song for him to be like, wait a second, I love her. That's not what he says. No. He says, I've gotten used to her being around. And I now appreciate who she is and what she's brought to my life. Of course, in the same breath that he's like, I wish her ill. <laughs> I hope that she has a horrible life and gets together with Freddy and her business fails. And he's an asshole. Like, you know, so it's all mixed in together. But he still kind of is like, well, you know, but like, I am going to miss her. I wish that she was still going to be around. Mm-hmm. Right. And likewise, she goes out of her way in the the last confrontation scene to say, I don't have feelings for you that way. I love you as a friend, basically. I don't think it's romantic. I think it is a love story in the sense of them, like, learning to love each other as people and, like, want to be in each other's lives. But I don't think they're a couple at the end. Right. And I think the other sort of layer to this, which is interesting to consider, is... I I kind of wonder if Henry Higgins is gay.
3: Mm.
2: And I don't think it's meant to be explicit at all. I don't think that you're supposed to come away knowing, oh, he's definitely gay. But I do think that there's something about all the things going on that I think is meant to make you question, like raise the question of like, maybe he's gay or maybe, you right. know, like, I mean, of course he very explicitly says he does not want a woman in his life. And he goes as far to say in... It's called A Hymn to Hymn, um, which, you know, nice nice wordplay there, but it's the one where he's saying, like, why can't a woman be more like a man?
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: he goes as far as to, like, ask Pickering, you know, like, well, if, if we were together, would you do this? Would you be slighted if I didn't speak for hours? Of course not. Would you be livid if I had a drink or two? Nonsense. Would you be wounded if I never sent you flowers? Never. Well, why can't a woman be like you? Why can't, why can't a woman be more like you? He right. says that, right? And their relationship is really ambiguous, right? Pickering seems to live in the house with him, right? Yeah. And even like when they pick the dress for Eliza, right? There's a scene before they're going to the race. They're walking up the stairs together, Pickering and Henry. And Henry kind of is like looking at Pickering. And he says, I think, you know, she needs a dress and it should have this. And he's sort of modeling it on Pickering. He's saying like, oh it should be like this over here and maybe a nice bow here, and he's sort of imagining Pickering in a dress, right? Or like just the fact that he calls them both confirmed old bachelors, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, There's yeah, yeah. so much so much coded stuff in this that I don't think is meant to be explicit, but it is meant to kind of raise the question of right. being of being like, well, I don't know. What what is going on here, right? Like that's that's really the bottom line I think. And what is the relationship between these three people?
1: Yes, I think there's probably. I don't think you're entirely far off with that assessment. I mean, whether or not that was the intention of the authors, mm-hmm. and all what I mean at this point, it's Lerner and Lowe and George Bernard Shaw and like, and, and then whoever wrote the screenplays of the right and George the Millions, of the, yeah. But yeah. perhaps it was Cucor's intention, and knowing his history as sort of the closet homosexual in Hollywood. Like, I I don't know. Like, maybe there is something to that. He's putting some of that to be interpreted into the... I, into the... I have an
2: interesting anecdote. Okay. So, when the Broadway show was sort of, like, still in... They were still figuring it out, right? Apparently, I think this is from Lerner's autobiography, he was walking down the street in New York with Rex Harrison. Right. And they were both frustrated because the role of Henry Higgins was not quite clicking in the second act. Right, He didn't have the same presence that he did in the first act. And so Rex says to Lerner, wouldn't it just be easier if I was gay?
3: Hmm.
2: Straight up. That's what he says to him. And Lerner says, I don't think that's the solution, but (laughs) that's where he got the song, A Hymn to Him. Ah. It came out of that conversation and Rex Harrison's insight of like, you know, because that's basically what he's saying in that song. Wouldn't it be easier if I were gay? Right. 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 Um, Which which is, you know, of course, the simplification. But it is interesting that that message found its way in there. And, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it like you said, whether it's intentional or not, I think the movie has a few other messages that kind of reinforce that idea a little bit. Um, And again, I don't think it's meant to be something that you take away from it. clear cut. But, no. but just that it is there.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is interesting because like there is the line where he's like, oh, of course I find you attractive. Or you're attractive to somebody or whatever or whatever the right, line Right, exactly it's always like, It's
2: always like, well, maybe, you know, you're quite attractive. My mother could set you up with someone. Yeah, or, yeah. Or, you know, oh, yeah, it's not bad at all. Like when she comes down the, you know, the stairs, I think it is, and she's getting ready for the ball and she's wearing this astounding <laughs> outfit and the yeah. camera's like practically wolf whistling her. Yeah, exactly. Right? And he's just like, oh, yeah, it's not bad. Yeah. you know like that's his reaction he's not like you look beautiful there's no, there isn't that moment where he like suddenly breaks and he's like oh you are beautiful nope doesn't happen he's, and this is the thing i <sighs> just you know i
1: i can't remember well enough when i saw the stage production 25
2: years ago or whatever it was right
1: but i feel like they did sort of play up more of the romance element and made it sure which again musical theater like it's sort of lends itself to that but i i think there's something really interesting about the fact that yeah like you say the film's approach anyway seems to be like aromantic or asexual in 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 nature and yeah that final line of where the devil are my slippers it's such an interesting way to go out i'm also intrigued as you alluded to earlier as to why she chooses to come back Again, is that just a product of the era in which this story and this musical was being made? That well, of course she comes back because she has to come back. Whereas, like, and is that the sort of dance that when it's revived in twenty eighteen, like you have to play of like, well, she probably wouldn't come back.
2: And that was and that was George Bernard Shaw's argument was that no, she shouldn't come back because (laughs) he's an asshole. Exactly. And and the whole point is that she's kind of freed herself through this process but and, and I think in the original play I think she does actually basically go and marry Freddy and all that stuff right and he's just kind of like left alone at the end I think but like that was why Rodgers and Hammerstein struggled adapting it as a musical because it just yeah. didn't the ending was challenging mm-hmm. um, but yeah in this case if you're making sense of it and you're being generous I think you have to imagine that Eliza had her own I've grown accustomed to her face moment Where it's like, you know, he's having this kind of realization that he hates her, but he loves her, and she must have had that same realization and come back. But, like, it just sucks that you don't get to see that, you know? It's like, I I feel like if I were doing a stage adaptation myself, it's like, I would do it as a duet or something, you know what I mean? Where they're off in two different places, having separate moments that bring them back together or something, because it's just it sucks that she has a lot of agency throughout and when she doesn't have agency like the attention's called to it right mm-hmm. and like that's a whole that's the whole thing is that like she's not given any credit that's why she leaves so yeah. at the very end to not give that to her character feels like a bummer a little bit
1: yeah i mean it 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 again and this is this is very much like the 2023 20, reading but you know yeah the idea that it ultimately ends up being higgins's story in a way and that everything is framed around him you know I think it just maybe reflects the fact that there's no women involved in the writing or creation of the musical, in a sense. You would think with the title My Fair Lady, like, it would ultimately be about her, but right. it kind of ends up not being in the end, which is an interesting um, way to wrap things
2: up. But well, well, and I think, you know, like, the idea that they end up together is really depressing. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because he still, he treats her like crap and is, like, wishing her ill in the final love song all, still, right? And, like, at the beginning of the movie, I turned to my wife and I, I sort of said, you know, like, well, okay, so obviously, like, you know, he's upper class and she's lower class, but he's an asshole and she's kind and she's going to teach him kindness. Yeah, that right. Be, gonna, be there's going to be of... some kind of swap. It's not yeah. what happens. No. It's not at all what happens. And if that were the case, then you'd be kind of like, oh, isn't it sweet that they ended up together? But yeah. he doesn't really learn much. You know it, he doesn't really change that much as a person other than just simply realizing that um <laughs> that he appreciates that she's around and it's okay that she's a woman <laughs> yeah exactly. And, like that's pretty much like the amount that he changes so uh yeah I, I don't like to imagine that like okay and then they're gonna live miserably ever after basically <laughs> you know yeah yeah for sure
1: Okay, well, now that brings us to one of our favorite segments of the show, the parts that feel like Simpsons jokes but aren't. Nate, would you like to (laughs) start us off here?
2: Yeah, so I had, like, a couple in here that I thought were really funny. I mean, probably my favorite one is just uh, all of Henry Higgins' creative and brutal insults throughout the movie, which I was writing down as I was, like, taking notes every time he said something because they almost all made me laugh out loud and also kind of like gasp a little like clutch my pearls (laughs) but yeah so i I, i'll just recite them right here so we have you squashed cabbage leaf (laughs) you draggle-tailed gutter snipe impetuous insect infamous creature this thing i created from a squashed cabbage leaf (laughs) uh impudent hussy and hellcat um i love those and i felt like they definitely had a kind of sideshow Bob or Mr. Burns kind of vibe of the those Very really over-eloquent so. characters on The Simpsons. Um, Absolutely. But yeah, laugh out loud. And what about you?
1: Yeah, I mean, some of the stuff with the dad, uh, uh, Professor, is it Professor Doolittle? No, <laughs> Professor Doolittle is <laughs> Dr. from Dolittle? Dr. Doolittle. Yeah, no, uh, you know who I'm talking about. Uh, Mr. Doolittle. Alfie
2: Doolittle. Alf,
1: yes, yes, Alfie Doolittle, thank you. He's obviously there and he's playing for played for comedy and everything. But he does kind of have like in the way the Simpsons sometimes just uses Grandpa Simpson as like elderly humor. There's a little bit of that to him. Like, it's just mm-hmm. like, well, we can because he's like this doddering old man. We can we can be funny about it. We didn't mention this, but in my fair laddie, there is a great reference to his number when
0: he
2: it, right. It's it's like they're doing a parody of the rain in Spain and yes. Homer interrupts and goes, Blue pants, blue pants, and Lisa says, uh, Dad, yeah, get, get your, your own, own song. song. And then he's like, okay, and he right, he walks out the door singing a parody of uh, I'm Getting Married in the I'm Morning. I'm Getting
1: Married in the Morning,
2: yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm getting
1: blue pants in the morning. <laughs> Ding dong, the zipper's gonna show. Despite my criticisms of the fact that he adds to the length of the film, the character and what he provides is the genuinely entertaining. And the yeah. performance that he gives is outstanding. Like you can yeah. you can see why they brought him back from the Broadway show and put him in the film because he is really really good.
2: Yeah, for sure. One of the other fun sort of moments is at the end of Wouldn't It Be Loverly. They're doing all sorts of fun proppy stuff, you know, like <laughs> there's a vegetable cart that they're like using like a teeter totter and all sorts of stuff, but then at the end Eliza Doolittle gets driven away on the back of a giant garbage cart, <laughs> waving. Mm, yes, which yeah. I thought was very Simpsons-ish as well. That was
1: pretty There's funny. also one of my favorite pieces of choreography. It's not really Simpsons jokey, but like it kind of is, and it's a visual moment that works really well for me. Is in the Royal Ascot scene. There's a woman who is like holding champagne or something, mm. and she like whooshes her arm around really quickly, and would have knocked. Like another woman over, but the woman happens to like lean over to like pick something up, or oh. it's just like it's beautifully Perfect. timed and beautifully yeah. choreographed. And I I made note of it. Obviously, in this audio medium, it is not particularly. It's not it's not playing, but uh, <laughs> it was a moment that I was like, oh, that's like a really nice like visual. Like it's a piece of visual humor and right. choreography that I noticed and really appreciated. So yeah, there's some um, good
2: stuff like that in here. I mean, I think it's the wedding number uh, where the father. Dips his chin in a glass of beer and comes out with a foam beard. I thought yeah. that was that was pretty hilarious. And unexpected. Yeah, no, that's good.
1: Obviously, Michael, you love this, this show. You love this movie. You brought it to us. And I do thank you for forcing me to finally, like, cross this one off my list. But do you have any sort of, like, final parting thoughts about My Fair
0: Lady? I think, ultimately, it's a product of its time. It's really well made. It definitely memorializes the music and the stuff you know it's still problematical i think (laughs) you know it's way way long i couldn't believe how long it is i almost fell asleep watching it again last night but it's definitely worth it i mean especially if you're a fan of the theater to see uh these performances and especially i will say you know Stanley holloway playing alfred p doolittle you know he does a pretty good job and like keeps the show going and especially on broadway those numbers are like you need them you need them because like for this, sure for sure you would know. you
1: i guess that's my question is like as someone who has seen both the theatrical production of it and the film production like do you think it's a it's a decent adaptation or translation however you want to put it of that show does it distill the essence of the show down Yeah. well
0: definitely definitely it it presents the show in the best possible light i'd say you know, and now history is the judge, you know, in terms of like how how thing how the relationship between men and women and that kind of stuff, you know. But that's it definitely is a good archive of what the show is.
2: Cool. Well, so, Adam, you know, at the end of the day, would you recommend this movie?
1: Look, I went into this one knowing the runtime and knowing that I'm not overly fond of this era of musicals. You and I grew up right at the tail end of the, like, boom of the big showy West End 80s musical, and then sort of a renaissance of, like, the rock musical in the 90s. So the type of show that I normally like does not tend to be this golden era, very sort of quasi-romantic, I mean, in this case, arguably, but, you know, long three-and-a-half-hour type show. So I went into this being like, I don't, I don't, I am going to enjoy this. Yeah. Um. But I was really pleasantly surprised at just like how funny it is, and despite it, yes, being three, you know, <laughs> close to three and a half hours long, it does actually move pretty, yeah, at a pretty
2: brisk pace. And it I, seems I tr- interesting. Yeah. Part. And tr-
1: and and truthfully, I watched it over two nights. I split it up at the intermission, and then the next night I watched Act Two, as mm-hmm. it were, which is obviously not the way that the film is intended to be watched. But yeah, I I think. As, from a completionist standpoint, you absolutely should see it. And I do genuinely think that it is worth watching, if nothing more than for Rex Harrison's performance. I think it is genuinely one of the best on-screen comedic performances of this era. Like It is yeah. so good. He is able to take, as we keep saying, this deplorable, despicable human and yet somehow make him... Maybe likable is not the right term, but, like, there's a there's something charming and enjoy, maybe enjoyable is the yeah. right right way to put it. And, yeah, like, visually it is stunning. So I definitely think it's worth people's time. Uh, what about you?
2: Yeah, I, no, I, I definitely agree. I was surprised as well. Like I said, you know, when I watched it at first, I was sort of like, oh, that was pretty good. And then it really stuck with me. And I was not expecting that because I, most musical movies that I have seen don't stick with me in that way. But I was mm-hmm. really thinking about it. So I think like, yeah, you know, Rex Harrison's performance, the aesthetic of it, all great. And then I think for me it was just the stuff that you can't really ever know the answer to, right? Yeah. That keeps you kind of thinking about it and thinking about the themes and thinking about the relationships and the characters after you're done watching. Those are the strengths. In terms of the weaknesses, I feel like yeah, definitely it could have been cut down a little bit. I applaud it for in- including so much or being so true to the original musical, right? But I think that there are also ways to be true to the original musical without necessarily including everything, right? Yeah. It's like uh, Zack Snyder, right? Same sort of <laughs> yeah, situation, exactly. right? It's like, yeah, totally. you know, he, he puts everything on the screen frame by frame... And that's one way to be true to it. But actually, it might be better if it was adapted a little, right? Yeah. And yeah. so I think it's the same thing here. It could have used a little bit more to, to speed things along, but also take advantage of the medium. And then the other thing I would say is that there definitely are some laugh-out-loud moments, but I think most of them are coming from Rex Harrison or possibly from Alfie. Um, but I think that there are also a lot of moments of attempted humor that don't t- totally land, right? That would be my other sort of criticism, but those are both pretty light criticism for me. Like, I would definitely recommend this. I think it's one of the most interesting musical movies I've ever seen. In
1: terms of extra credit, obviously we both were new to this one, so it's not like we necessarily have that sort of vast knowledge of other stuff, but if people enjoyed this... Is there something else you would maybe recommend, musical or otherwise?
2: Yeah, totally. So I went down the rabbit hole of sort of transfer transformation movies, right, mm-hmm. or like mm-hmm. makeover movies, or however totally. you want to think of them. And so one that definitely came to mind is Grease, which of course <laughs> is another musical, but it's almost the reversal of this, where Absol- you,
1: yeah, totally, you
2: have you have a fair lady who needs to learn how to be a draggle tailed gutter snipe, um, <laughs> and and hang out with the cool kids, and then. The other one that came to mind was Clueless, actually, mm. um, which it's a movie I really love. I think it's great. Yeah. Um, and but it, it's also not only does it include sort of another transformation; it's based on Jane Austen's Emma, but also a lot of it is also about like class and yes. and sort of like how people talk and how people carry themselves and who passes for what and all of that kind of stuff. And it also has a really strong satirical edge to it. So I think that one definitely, you know. It's a great movie, but it also aligns with a lot of the sort of themes and and ways of of thinking about these things.
1: Yeah, Clueless is such a good movie. And uh, there was actually a a musical adaptation of it recently. I think it was off-Broadway. It definitely wasn't on-Broadway. I can't Mm. remember if it was off-Broadway or, like, L.A. or anything. But it's definitely a film that I could see working in a musical uh, format. Yeah, for me, I I similarly was, like, thinking of transformation-type movies. The one that immediately sort of came to mind was uh pretty woman Mm. which feels very sort of in the same but a bit more modern like we're gonna take the rich businessman is gonna transform the hooker with the heart of gold as i think the simpsons referred to her but yeah my wife is a big fan of julia roberts movies and i do really like pretty woman also my wife would really really want me to uh include she's all that did you ever see that it's with I Freddie Prince Jr. Remember. and it's it's basically like Pygmalion. Like, right. The, it's almost, but it's set in the high school. And, um, but she referred to it. Let me just pull up the text because I was like, oh yeah, she's all that. I'm pretty sure that's My Fair Lady story. Is that a good movie? And her one word response was phenomenal. So uh, that would that would get her vote. I recommend um, I guess the only other sort of recommendation I would give. Based on everything that we've sort of been talking about, is Mary Poppins because oh, it was yeah, this, sure. it was this, yeah, it was this sort of the filmic rival to this film, which is a really great segue into what our next episode will be. Because our next episode will be Mary
3: Poppins. Yeah, um, for sure.
1: So, yeah, definitely that's the one to check out next because that's what we're going to be talking about next week. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited to to dig into that one. That was a big favorite of mine as a kid so it's going to be fun to sort of tuck in and Mm -hmm. into all the juicy little bits and uh and revisit another
2: one i had not seen until pretty recently i think or just didn't remember at all i know it's it's, it is it's a weird thing big oversight for sure
1: well michael thank you so much for joining us like i i really appreciate you taking the time out of your your, your busy life to chat with two random yeah. strangers from the internet. Um, yeah,
2: this has been fantastic. Thank you. Uh, and allowing uh, I, us
0: to pick your brain. It's been such a pleasure and I apologize for my computer. I have to go to Best Buy probably now and get a new one. But, uh, <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Michael. Awesome.
1: Well, with that, that brings us to the end of another episode of the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpsons fans. If you enjoyed what you heard, please leave us a review and share this episode with the Simpsons fans and film buffs in your life. And if you enjoyed our show, you might enjoy other Find That Shelf programming, such as Black Hole Films, the show about films you have meant to watch but haven't gotten around to yet. Kind of kind of similar premise to yeah, our show, in fact. Totally. So I think if you like our show, you're gonna love their show too. But yes, thank you for listening. And you know, as we say around these parts, Nate. See you around the plex. See you around the plex. We're gonna get shirts one day that's like that Lots of chocolates for me to eat. <laughs> Bum, 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 bum. Who takes good care of me, oh. So this is just for Nate when he's doing the, when he's listening back to the recording. He'll get to hear me singing My Fair
3: Lady. Wouldn't it be lovely?